0: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, in you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you my help? Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all ye descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust will bow before Him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve Him, it will be told to the Lord, to the coming generation. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born, that He has. Has performed it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, the breath of life in our lungs right now. Thank you that we can gather together to um, hear your words so freely, Lord. And Lord, I ask that you teach us from your word this morning, minister to our hearts and by the power of your spirit and, and change us, Lord God, transform us to make us look more like Jesus, that we may live lives to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you remember, it was actually not so long ago that a few uh, men from our church preached through the Psalms. And we had five Sundays um, exploring Psalm 1, Psalm 15, Psalm 32, Psalm 103, Psalm 111. And we used the acronym ACTS to explore the, uh, and, and discuss the elements, the core elements of prayer. We had A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. And I was remembering what a, what a blessing it was and, and how foundational it was to the Christian believer. And you know what I said to myself? I said, self, let's do one more psalm. I mean, we've only done five out of the 150 available to us, so let's make it a riveting topic, uh, topic that everyone can uh, relate to. Let's talk about prayers of lament. Now, that may not sound very exciting, but hang in there. Today, we're gonna explore the the rich and wonderful Psalm 22. I think Psalm 22 is one of the more well-known psalms because the first line of this prayer is um, um, a line that Jesus took on his lips as he hung on the cross. However, the rest of the psalm may not be as well-known to us and seem a bit confusing to the reader at first, but I want to remind you this morning of a key purpose to the book of Psalms and that is to help you cultivate a, a habit of a daily daily prayer and a daily connection to God. And this is a learned skill, this is not something you just know how to do automatically. So the book of Psalms exists within the scripture to teach us how to pray and interestingly enough, the Psalms are full of emotion and give place to express our emotion in our prayer life. Now some of you may hear that and uh, want to run for the door because for whatever reason you're about as emotional as a rock and you know that's just how you are. And others, you may be really excited to hear that, um, but you know that you're the kind of person that could be prone to being way over-emotional. But the Psalms, they don't stuff or deny our emotions in our journey in following God. But at the same time, they don't show us prayers that are simply overrun or overtaken by emotion. The Psalms take this middle way, praying through our emotions. It's about intentional, thoughtful, and, and it's a reflective journey, discovering the sources of what we're feeling, and reminding ourselves of God's character as we go through this process, exploring what it means to pray, pray through our pain and through our grief and our suffering. And if you've been a Christian for a long amount of time, you would have certainly been faced with a challenge of trying to reconcile two seemingly competing truths in our minds. On one hand, we believe that God is good, right? that He's real, that is present, and that His will and purpose for our world are to heal and to save. And, and we hold to this belief not just because um, it sounds like a nice thing, but because we can point in history to where He has demonstrated His goodness and His care. As we're going to see in Psalm 22, for the Israelites in the Hebrew Scriptures, the pinnacle um, action of God's care and goodness was the exodus, redeeming the Israelite slaves out of Egypt. And that was what they most often pointed to is how he showed his mercy, his love, and he answered their prayers, along with many other times. But what about us? Well, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I can point to Jesus. God's action into entering human history and living and dying and being raised for us, right? That's the ultimate demonstration of God's goodness and love. So on one hand, we know God is good and that he's present and that he cares. But on the other hand, you watch the news, you see the pain and the horror of human history and the chaos of just the majority of humans' daily life. Not only that, you come to reflect on your own experiences of pain and suffering. And for many people, when hardships or tragedy strike their lives, they either don't know how to hold on to this belief in God's goodness, or they begin to question it or let it go altogether. Or they alter their view of God, like he's some sort of absentee, um, distant landlord or whatever, because where was God in my pain and in my suffering? And if you haven't felt this tension yet in your own journey being a Christian, just give it some time. Because this isn't just a theology problem. It's part of the human experience in living in a broken world. And so the good news is that the book of Psalms doesn't try to solve this just intellectually for us. In fact, the Bible, for the most part, doesn't actually tell us uh, much about why or how evil entered into the world. But what the Bible is trying to tell us is what God is doing about the problem of evil and suffering in human history. The Psalms are giving us language for how to pray through that tension. And how do you pray through it? Well, about one third... About 50 of the 150 prayers in the book of Psalms are generated out of this pain and this anguish and this tension. And the way that these biblical prayers move through it is through lament. You don't deny that you feel this way, but at the same time, you don't just sell the farm and ditch the whole thing, so to speak. And that's what Psalm 22 is all about. So what is this word lament? What is lament? What is lament? Well, lament is not the same as crying, it's different, and it's uniquely Christian. The book of Lamentations weep over, weep over the destruction of Jerusalem, um, Jesus lamented over the final hours of his life, but lamenting is not just crying, lamenting is different from that, it's a form of prayer, it's more than just an expression of sorrow or a venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain, and it has a unique purpose and that is trust. Trust. It's a divinely given instruction to pour out our fears, frustrations, and sorrow for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. You see, um, prayers of lament take faith to pray. In faith, you talk to God instead of getting sinfully angry or bitter, you turn to Him. It requires a biblical conviction that says even though this life is hitting hard right now and I'm suffering, I know the solution is turning to my God. Biblical lamenting turns you to God when sorrow tempts you to run from Him. And the practice of uh, lamenting is actually one of the most theologically informed things a person can do. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. In my experience, um, when crisis hits our lives, uh, I think um, the prayer mode for most of us would be the request prayer mode. You know, Lord, you know, help me provide a solution to my problem, send relief, uh, send this resource, intervene here, intervene now. And in my journey of studying prayers of lament, I came across something very interesting about the structure of these kinds of prayers in the Bible. As with most... Prayers of lament that talk about the times of struggle. There are moments in the prayer where the ones praying ask God, um, ask a request of God. You know, ask for deliverance, ask for protection, ask for salvation, etc. Um, but interestingly enough, these moments of request tend to be a very small part of the prayer compared to the uh, the, the lament. Look at Psalm 22, for example. Um, we'll just skim through. Look at the first line: "My God, my God." Why have you forsaken me? Is that a request? No, it's more of a question. Look at verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. That's not a request, that's a statement. Verse 3, you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Verse 6, but I am a worm, not a man. 12, many bulls have surrounded me. 14, I am poured out like water. 16, for dogs have surrounded me. 18, they divide my garments among them still no requests. The huge majority of this prayer, and there are no requests. It's an anguished, detailed description of what's happening to me and how I feel about it. But then comes verse 19, and here comes the requests. And they are quite short, just three verses. Um, Verse 19, O Lord, be not far off. 20, deliver me. 21, rescue me, save me. And I think the assumption that we have when hardship comes is God already knows what's happening. He already knows how I feel. What I need to do is tell him exactly what he needs to do about it. That's maybe our assumption. But the Psalms seem to have an opposite assumption. The Psalms assume that God already knows what to do. So just asking simply, deliver me, save me, rescue me, help me. They assume that what God is actually most interested in is in hearing me describe how I'm processing all of what's happening to me and how it's making me feel. Not for God's sake, but for our sake. Because truth be told, God knows all things. He knows how you feel. He knows where you're at in dealing with things. He knows exactly what to do about it. But prayers of lament offer an opportunity to turn our eyes to God and process life through the truth of who God is. So let's dive into the psalm and see how David prays through his grief. First, we have the superscription at the top. And if you read the NASB, you notice it doesn't translate it for you. It says, for the choir director upon Shikhar, psalm of HaShachar, uh, Psalm of David. In other words, it's for the choir director to sing the psalm to the tune of the deer of the dawn. And this is talking about a melody to which the prayer was played in Israel's worship in the temple. And it was for the director of music to know to play this melody when we do this psalm. Why is this important? Well, it's important because it tells us something. It tells us that this was a public prayer. This was originally a Psalm of David generated, as we're going to see soon, a very anguished, out of a very anguished and difficult life experience. And we can take some guesses um, to what that was, but we don't really know exactly what the experience was. But as we can see from the superscript, David's prayer passed on and into the prayer life of his people. And there are about a thousand years separating um, the time from when David was praying this prayer and when, when Jesus took that prayer, uh, the same prayer upon his lips on the cross. And who knows how many countless thousands of Israelites prayed this prayer in their time of anguish and need. And if you think about it, Psalm 22 is actually a personal conversation between David and God. And yet it's been preserved in Scripture and made public for generations of people who call Yahweh their God. Just like the epistles, um, like the letters to the churches from Paul and John, etc. They are conversations between the apostle who penned the letter and to the church that he's sending it to. Yet God has made them available to all who call on Jesus their Lord. Psalm 22, what once was David's word to God, is now become God's word to us and teaching us. And this prayer is for all who have ever felt abandoned by God, teaching us how to lament. And it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. And as I said before, we don't have the details of the situation, but we know David lived in seasons of great danger and deprivation. For example, uh, when he was on the run from Absalom. And David uses strong language like the word forsaken to describe his feelings of personal abandonment expressing that God seems to be silent in the situation, saying that he cries out by day and he doesn't get an answer from the Lord. And because of this, he cannot experience rest and silence at night. But understand this, David is not just hopelessly crying out to whoever will listen. David is crying out because he too is wrestling with these seemingly competing truths. He knows that God is good, and he doesn't want injustice in his world, but he is looking at the wicked world around him and wondering why God seems silent on the matter, and in his situation, asking, why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? But it's not hopeless crying. It's biblical lament. It's an act of faith. Look at the very first words, my God, my God. This was David's God. This is the one who guided him and protected him as a shepherd boy. This was the one who guided him and protected him as he fought Goliath. This is the same God who guided and protected him as he fought many a battles as the king of Israel. The God who he loves, the God who he has personal relationship with, and the God of his people and his ancestors. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5. It says, Yet you are holy, O you who enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, in you they trusted and they were not disappointed. David was expressing maybe, you know, some, experiencing maybe some doubt or confusion, but not understanding his situation. But what he did understand is that God is holy. Charles Spurgeon once said, um, we may not question the holiness of God, but we may argue from it and use it as our plea in our petitions. And I think that's what David does. He he refers to God has um he he refers to how God has like proven his faithfulness in the past. And there's been many times in the past where people cried out to to you, Lord, and you, you totally responded. So think of the Exodus story. Remember at the burning bush with Moses, God said in Exodus 2, verses 7 to 10, he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." David remembers how God has delivered his people before, which brings comfort knowing that he is crying out to the same God that has delivered before and can deliver again. But he points to the nature of God as a deliverer to say, what about me? Why have you forsaken me? David moves on to continue describing his situation. Verses six and eight says, but I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men And despised by the people all who see me sneer at me they separate with the lip they wag the head saying commit yourself to the lord let him deliver him let him rescue him because he delights in him he's feeling deeply isolated in his tragedy david feels less than human describing himself as a worm rather than a man and mocked by the people around him they sneer at him they jeer at him taunting him saying if you are really the lord's chosen king if god really delights in you let God come to deliver you then. And once again, David expresses his hurt to the Lord, like in the first verses of Psalm in the Psalm twenty-two. But just like before, David remembers God's heart and expresses it in verse nine to eleven. He says, "Yet, you are He who brought me from the womb; you made me trust when my, upon my mother's breast, upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near." for there is no one to help. These are actually some of the most unique descriptions of God in in the whole Bible. Um, God is depicted as a a midwife, as someone who deeply cares for David. He knows that God is the author of his life. He knows that God is responsible for his existence, and he knows that God has been close to him ever since his, his first breath. So once again, David reminds the Lord of his past faithfulness towards him and asks him to act again. Now this can seem a bit weird to us to talk to God in such a way, but according to the psalm and many others like it, it seems to be a healthy thing to remember God's faithfulness in hard times and articulate that to him in your prayers. Let's keep reading. Let's see what David means by trouble is near, verse 12 and 13. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. What is happening here? David wasn't lost in the Kruger National Park. This is a very common metaphor uh, in the Psalms, in particular, and in other biblical poetry to describe either circumstances that are very hostile or dangerous to you, or people who are your opponents um, or your enemies, to describe them in terms of vicious animals So it seems kind of strange to us, but it's super common in their culture and time. And the idea of bulls and lions are these strong and, and dangerous and uncontrollable creatures. As far as David goes, he feels completely the opposite. Verse 14 and 15 says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potchet, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. David felt completely empty. He perceived no resource in himself able to meet the crisis at hand. Uh, whatever strength or resistance that uh, he had was poured out like water upon the ground, and his vitality is gone. Phrases like, you lay me in the dust of death. Brings us back to the language of Genesis. In Genesis 3.19, God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. David feels like it's over for him. Death is looming at his door. And David describes that it's not, it's not just him who sees this situation. Others want to take advantage of this too. In verse 16 to 19, he says, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. When David here speaks of dogs, um, he's not talking about Pomeranians and chihuahuas. He's talking about real dogs. Uh, In those days, in that region, um, dogs were wild and they were scavengers. and Not too many people had pet dogs back then. I guess in Aussie language we would call them dingoes, right? And it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, There are some arguments on the translation of this verse, whether it's supposed to say they pierced my hands and my feet, or whether it should say like a lion to my hands and my feet. Um, Either way, it's describing injury to the hands and the feet like a lion would pierce you with its teeth and grab you. And David can count all his bones. He's describing his emaciation. He's thin and he's weak and people are taking advantage of him in this state. says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, why would you do that? Why would would someone place bets on who gets what piece of clothing? Well, it's because they know that that person is soon to be no more. Death is around the corner. Question. Did all these things really happen to David? We have no record of David's hands and feet suffering injury like piercing. We have no record of people um, casting lots for David clothing, but David is describing his situation in an overly dramatic way, a poetic way, in order to describe what a situation feels like to him. And sometimes our feelings can be quite unreasonable, but sometimes we'll make a mountain of a molehill as the saying goes, but it's an important in Biblical meant, to lay yourself bare before your God. Make your request made known to him and let him work on your heart. And we may get into the thing of, oh, God already knows how I feel, but no, verbalize it, articulate it to the Lord. Let him remind you of what he has done. Let him answer. In verses 19 to 20, David finally makes his requests. He says, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O you my help? Hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. It's at this point that the the psalm takes a dramatic turn. The lament is done. David has laid his heart before the Lord, and somewhere between verse 21 and verse 22, the Lord responds to David. At this point, David's heart takes a dramatic change from isolated anguish to comfort and praise. Look what he says. He says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you for the fear of the Lord. Praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. Why is that? Well, verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the the affliction of the afflicted nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. David's, um, well, during David's lament, something changed. The Lord answered. David's perspective changed. He started with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from the deliverance of the words of my groaning. And now he says, well, actually, you do hear my words. When he cried to him for help, he heard. He has not hidden his face. Our God is an amazing God. To think that the God who handles the affairs of the universe cares about the condition of one man's heart. Think about the Prime Minister of Australia. He doesn't involve himself in your day-to-day issues, right? He's too busy running the country. But our God is more than capable of upholding the universe all at the same time comforting a broken heart. Wow, wow. David in, in Psalm chapter eight, marvels at this truth, actually. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Looking at the last part of Psalm 22, um, David continues to praise God. But the praises seem to be far more than what the Lord has just done for David. Notice this language in verse 25 to 31. It says, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. He has done it. He speaks universal praises for universal blessings using phrases like all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation will worship before you. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship and all those who go down to the dust will bow before him. David is not talking about just his own experience anymore, is he? He's not even talking about the nation of Israel. He's prophetically speaking of all the families, not just his. He's talking about all the nations, not just his. I think what's happening here is it's as if David thinks of his own story and the tragedy in his own life where he called out to God and he just had to lament and pray through those emotions and those feelings and at some point he met the answer to those prayers and he celebrated the gift of God's mercy and grace and ex- that he experienced in his life and it's almost like at the end of his prayer he sees the story of what he went through as just a small example of, what, of the big story that God is weaving in the whole of his world, that God is set on redeeming and rescuing the whole world. And so he ends by saying, this, this thing that I experienced of being able to praise God on the other side of my suffering, he sees that all the creation is headed toward praise on the other side of suffering, and all nations will worship, even those who are going to the dust. Um, this is an image of death. Remember earlier he said, I'm in the dust of death. He apparently has this idea that God's mercy and his commitment to our world even reaches beyond the power of death, that even death can't thwart God's ultimate purpose to save and to heal this world. And so he ends by saying, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. He envisions like this unending gathering of generations all bringing their stories of suffering and pain and how god met them and delivered them and he is not alone in his lament we know the cause of all lament that is sin sin has destroyed god's good world and all of creation longs for the day that god would do something about it and so you may look at our world you may go lord My God, my God, why have you forsaken us in this world? Do you not hear our groaning? But I have good news for you. Just like David realized that God, after all, had not forsaken him, we too can know that God has not hidden his face from humanity. God has heard humanity's cry for help, and he sent Jesus, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, the promised king from David's line. You see, the Gospel of Matthew understands Psalm 22 very well. The Gospel of Matthew quotes and alludes to this particular Psalm more than 15 times. And I want to actually read to you a couple of um, verses from Matthew that describes the crucifixion of Jesus. And you'll see that Matthew is actually portraying the crucifixion in light of Psalm 22. For example, Matthew 27, verse 35, it says, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Matthew quotes this from Psalm 22, verse 18. He said, they divided lots. Uh, sorry, divided my garments among them and for my clothing, and they cast lots. Matthew twenty-seven, thirty-nine, And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Remember Psalm 22, 7? All who see me, sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag their head. Matthew 27, 41 to 43, it says, In the same way, the chief priests, also along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Remember Psalm 22, 8? Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him, because he delights in him. It's really interesting. Matthew 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, eli, eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Jewish culture, when a, a Bible verse is cited, the entire context is implied. Even to this day, um, Jewish people talk about the passage. If they're talking about a particular passage in the Bible, in the Torah, for instance, they don't use chapter and verse. Instead, they just quote the first few words or the first sentence. As most people memorize scripture, not having the Bible um, like a physical scroll or Bible of their own, it was a way to reference a particular part of what we would now call chapters. You know, referencing through chapters and verse is actually a recent invention in the timeline of the Bible. Even the books of the Bible are named after the first words in the book. For example, the book of Genesis in Hebrew is called Bereshit, which means in the beginning, because the first words are in the beginning. Exodus is called Shemot, which means names, because the book starts with the names of the sons of Israel. Leviticus is called Vaikra, which means he called. And you guessed it, because the first words of Leviticus is he called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So in that time, in order to give a... An address um, to a specific text, you wouldn't start with saying, Go to Psalm 22, verse 1 and read. You would say, eli, eli, lama My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The teacher, as he was often called by his disciples, was giving an address Go and read Psalm 22. Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 22, and he wants those hearing his cry to know it. Psalm 22 is made up of um, two distinct parts. The first part is the lament half of, of horrific suffering and death. And the second half talks of um, the last days where all the ends of the earth are praising God. So Psalm 22, verse 21 is a cry for help. Then something happens and shifts the whole prayer around that leads to verse 22, a line of prayer that's, uh, praise that says, I will tell of your name to my brethren after the crucifixion, if we look at Matthew 28 verses 8 to 10, this is the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels. It says, And behold, Jesus met them, and he greeted them, and he came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid, go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the first and only time that Jesus refers to disciples as my brethren in the whole Gospel. Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 12 speaks of the same thing, the same moment. It says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying... I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, quoting Psalm 22. In Christ's suffering on the cross, Matthew is linking all these events of the lament part of David's psalm and Psalm 22. And Jesus dies and he rises again, and Matthew kicks off the story of Jesus' first appearance with the praise part of Psalm um, 22, verse 22. What was in the middle? What was the event that moved us from intense lament to overwhelming praise? Is the death of Jesus, our Savior, on the cross. He is God's answer to humanity's cries of lament. He is the reason for humanity's praises. How does Psalm 22 end? Well, with all the nations coming to the Lord to worship Him. And how does the Gospel of Matthew end? Well, with the Great Commission. Go, therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God has not forsaken us. As the last line of Psalm 22 says, He has done it. Now, some of you may be sitting here and are currently going through tough times right now. And you may have no idea how or when God is going to bring His deliverance in your current situation. Some of you have people that you care about, care about deeply, and they're in the midst of their cry of anguish, and they don't see God's deliverance right now, and they don't see their prayers answered right now. And so what do you do when you are say, near your deathbed, never being able to make it to the praise part of Psalm 22. The truth of the matter is sin has marred our world, and because of sin we live in a broken world where not all of our prayers may be specifically answered this side of heaven. But that is the beauty of the cross. That is the beauty of the gospel. Good news that says God the Father has not ignored the prayers of Jesus Christ. Jesus cried out, the Father heard. Jesus is God entering into our suffering and our anguish so that he can conquer and heal it by his love. And we may never experience the second part of Psalm 22, but Jesus did. And as we make our confession of faith as a follower of Jesus, we put our trust to him and we hang on to him for life. So that what was true of him in his resurrection may become true of us one day in our resurrection and we may experience that now and we may experience that later in the new creation but what's most important in psalm 22 is the journey this was david's prayer this was jesus's prayer and this is an invitation for this to be your prayer too as we look in faith to the fulfillment of god's promises I'll close with this verse. As we read in Revelation about the ending of all laments, Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for coming down as a man to join us in our sufferings so that we can taste newness of life. And Lord, we know that our world is marred by sin and death, and we look forward to the day where sin and death are completely done away with. Lord, help us to cultivate a habit of faith to turn our eyes to you when trouble comes, Lord, to cry to you and lay our hearts bare before you. Teach us in this process to remember who you are, the nature of your character, help us to remember your faithfulness, what you have done, help us to remember Christ, so that we may praise you in the midst of the assembly, and we may tell of your goodness to our children and to generations to come, that you, through the Messiah Jesus, have done it.